You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Good morning and welcome. While the ark is being rolled into place here, uh, why don't I go ahead and dismiss the kids for Sunday school and their teachers. Thank you, brother. Uh, As Redemption Olds experiences its own version of the Exodus, um, although the children are not going into the wilderness, the basement is not quite that bad. Let's just, uh, I'd love to welcome you all. I see some new faces here. My name's Paul. Uh, I'm not one of the elders here. I'm just old. So uh, welcome. Thank you for coming. And uh, I'd really encourage you to open your Bibles. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, there should be one in front of you uh, in the pew. Um, We feel, all of the men that have been up here uh, preaching God's Word lately, we all feel that it's vitally important that you have God's Word open in front of you. Uh, But you techies and you hipsters, you can follow along on your phone if you like. Uh, That's fine. So, I have a question while we're waiting for those coming back. Has anyone ever gone pearl diving? Did you know that pearl diving is still happening today? When it comes to pearl diving, most people think about the Japanese, right? And diving in the beautiful coastal waters off of Japan. But, or perhaps you're thinking maybe of Indonesia or Thailand. But did you know that pearl diving is also happening in the Middle East? In the Gulf of Arabia, off of the coast of present-day United Arab Emirates, there's been pearl diving happening in that location for over 7,000 years. That's longer than before the book was written that we're going to be studying today. And what does scripture say about pearl diving? Absolutely nothing. Pearls, on the other hand, are mentioned in scripture. Cast not your pearls before swine in Matthew 7. And pearls are mentioned quite a few times in the book of Revelation when they are describing the New Jerusalem. But pearl diving doesn't mention bupkis. But did you know that pearl divers are able to dive to a depth of 20 to 30 meters? Well, more like sink, really. Because what happens when they're in the Gulf waters, they're kind of hanging off the side of the boat, they're filling their lungs with several breaths of air, and then someone on on board the boat gives them a rock that has a handle on it and a long rope, and usually they just sink to the bottom. They use the rock to make all the work and sink to the very bottom. Next, while they're down there, they gather, gather up a few oysters, and then they, with powerful kicks of their legs, they follow the rope back up to the surface and to the boat. So what does this have to do with Ecclesiastes? I see the wheels going here. Nothing directly. I mentioned pearl diving this morning for three reasons. The first reason is just to see if you're paying attention, okay? The second reason is because I'm going to take us into some deep water today. Not 20 or 30 meters deep, okay? Don't worry, 
We also have a qualified dive master to help us called the Holy Spirit, and he's going to watch over us and make sure that we don't get into any trouble. And finally, because I'm not really going to do a recap of the previous sermons that we've in this series that have been preached so far, you guys are adults. I know there's some new people here. If, um, if this is your first time, welcome, and I would really encourage you to log into our SoundCloud portal and listen to the previous sermons because all of the men that have been up here preaching have been building on each other. We've all been communicating with each other. But you guys are all adults. You can jump on the interweb and use the Googles to find the location. And uh, so having said all that, let's just dive into today's lesson. Did you see what I did there? Uh huh. Okay, all right. Uh, anyway, please, in your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. We're in Ecclesiastes. We're continuing this, the series. And today we're going to be in chapter 4. Verses 7 to 16. We all there? Okay, let me read the passage. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Can we just bow our heads and, and pray for a moment? Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for the freedom that we enjoy to gather as a group of believers to study your word. I just pray for uh, your assistance this morning. I pray that my words be your words and my thoughts be your thoughts. We just ask for the presence and empowerment of the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and minds to the message that you desire for us to learn today. If I say something that's in error, Lord, I just ask that it fall to the ground and fall upon, upon deaf ears. But above all these things, we do thank you for your grace and for your love, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so in this section, we see that Kohelet, or the teacher, is making three distinct points in three different sections yet the points are connected. The three points are, first, a man alone has no need to toil endlessly, or how much is enough. The second point is, a lone wolf has a dangerous journey, or traveling alone has its dangers. And the third is, kings are not above foolishness, or the appeal to authority fallacy. So we're going to paddle around in the shallow end a little bit here with these three points, and then we're going to move into the deeper waters, okay? 
Don't be nervous. I got you. We're all going to be okay. So in the text, we see in verse, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. The use of the word again as a conjunction here is showing us that it's a continuation of the thought from the previous verses in chapter 4. The teacher is arguing and continuing his argument. As a matter of fact, let's back up a couple of verses to verse 4 in chapter 4. And if you look in the second half, it says, This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I'd like to point out a major difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the languages used in the New Testament in the writing of our Bibles. You all know that the New Testament was written in Greek, Koinonia Greek specifically, which is it's a much simpler and lower level Greek. Uh, the Koinonia vocabulary used is more simple, probably written about a grade three to grade six level of difficulty. And oftentimes words were just mashed together to create new words, but it still got the point across. It was the language of the trades, the, the working class. It was the Greek they used in the hood, if you will. The original documents in the New Testament were all written within 100 years of each other, so the language did not evolve much during the time. Now, the Old Testament, which was written over the span of at least 2,000 years or more, depending on when the actual events were recorded, as a result, the Hebrew language evolved over a much longer period of time, and subtle nuances developed in their language. And sometimes the meaning of words became more diverse, sometimes they took on additional meanings. Hevel is one such word. We've been studying that a lot lately in the series, and it's kind of one of those key words because it's mentioned so often throughout the book. There is a challenge that presents itself to anyone who sits down and desires to seriously study and understand God's word and then try to teach it, try to teach it faithfully, faithfully to others. This process is called exegesis. And one of the things that we are warned to guard against in the process of exegesis is falling victim to fallacies. Now, a fallacy is an argument or a train of thought that is based on unsecure or false logic. Remember what the definition of a fallacy is, because we will bring it up for a total of three fallacies shortly. I'll repeat the definition. A fallacy is an argument or train of thought that is based on unsecure or false logic. One fallacy that we are to guard against is the word count fallacy. Now, in exegesis, a word count fallacy is assuming that when we see a word used in the Bible multiple times, the fallacy, or the danger, is to assume that it has the same meaning every time it is used. Diligent Bible readers and interpreters will depend on the current context that the word is surrounded by in each passage to help to determine the exact meaning of the word and not just rely on what a previous meaning for that word was. Another fallacy to be wary of is the overload fallacy. This fallacy refers to the reality that words will often have multiple meanings. The overload happens when we assume that when we see a word in the Bible, that every possible meaning of that word applies to that passage. Let me give you an example. Take the word tired, for example. A person can say they're tired because of a lack of sleep. Or... They are tired from working out too hard at the gym. 
or they are tired because they are bored with something or somebody, or they are tired because they want to change. So guys, when your wife comes home and says, I'm tired, it doesn't mean that she's physically tired and bored with your face after coming home working out at the gym. It could be that she just wants a change, or could be she's just tired. Context matters, okay? I say all of that just to illustrate that due to the beauty of the Hebrew language, nuanced differences have emerged in their language over the years, and we cannot assume each time we see a word or a phrase in the Bible that it will mean the same thing every time, or that it will mean everything every time. Let's look back in Ecclesiastes in chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The teacher is saying this too is vanity or meaningless or a chasing after or striving after wind. Does it mean this time that something is fleeting and hard to grasp? That was the definition we saw in Hevel the last time uh, we were together when I preached out of this book. No, here in this context, Hevel has an additional meaning. Here, the pursuit of wind is an idiom or an expression that conveys the thought that an activity has no chance of success. Think of our modern-day expression of fool's errand. So here in verse, uh, later in verse 8, we will see another interpretation of Hevel in a different context. But here in verse 4, the teacher is saying that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And if that is your motivation for your work, you, my friend, are on a fool's errand. The same interpretation applies in verse 7. Because of the use conjunction again, which indicates that the teacher is continuing the same thought. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Once again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. What Kohelet is trying to convey in verses 7 and 8 is that in the Jewish culture of that day, if you had no other, which primarily referred to if you didn't have a male heir, if you didn't have a brother or a son, then they're saying, why are you working so hard when you have no one to leave your inheritance to? So I'm a capitalist, and I believe in the free market economy, especially when the interference from governments and progressive thinkers are, is kept to a minimum. There are built-in checks and balances to keep the system running as fairly as possible. Competition, the freedom to find new customers or new suppliers, minimal requirements to enter the market, all act as checks on the system. But I do sometimes question the motivation of some of the wealthiest people in the world that continue to amass huge wealth. Now for some, life is a game to be played once and then it's over. Amassing wealth and power for them, it's a way to keep score. For others, particularly those who do not know Jesus Christ, that may be all that they have. And I'm not sure, because no man truly knows another man's heart, but here in Ecclesiastes, the teacher is warning that particularly for this man, who has no heir, the effort that he's expending to try and satisfy his eyes by compiling ever more things is hevel 
are vanity and an unhappy business. Kohelet is telling the man, for you, enough is enough. Sit back and enjoy the fruit of your labors. It was enough for him because he already had riches enough to keep him comfortable. But here in verse 8, the teacher is summarizing the preceding passage with the same expression of thought, the man was on a fool's errand. Let's turn to verses 9 to 12. We'll transition to the next thought. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now verse 9 transitions into a new set of warnings that at first glance kind of seem rather odd to us. What we need to understand is that Kohelet is expecting his audience to grasp the unspoken illustration, and with a little help, it'll become clear. What this section of verses 9 to 12 are referring to are the all-too-common dangers and challenges that people faced in that day when they were traveling. The teacher was not specific in the illustration because he expected the audience of his day to understand what he was talking about right away. Keep in mind, there were no planes or trains or buses in those days. There wasn't even an Uber you could call. When you traveled, you most likely walked. Traveling alone was often very dangerous. The first danger referred to here in the text came from camouflaged pits that were often dug to trap wild animals. Sometimes the pits were were dug and covered over to trap and rob travelers. So in verse 10, this would have been a practical warning and advice for travelers. If you fell into one such pit, who would be there to help you out? Other than the people that dug the pit, and you may not want that to have happened. The second part of these warnings also concentrates on the practical considerations for traveling. We can see the reference is to traveling from the conjunction, because the conjunction again is used in verse 11, and it says, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? There's nothing sexual being suggested here. This is basic physics and biology. They didn't have kerosene heaters in those days or pocket warmers to take with them. Uh, So when you were traveling, sure, you you would likely build a fire to keep uh, warm, unless you were just slightly off the trail and you wanted to stay out of the notice of traveling robbers. Therefore, two people could lie close together under a shared cloak. They could stay warm or at least help each other to stay warm. There's also another biblical example of this. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. This is referring to David in his old age. King David, Solomon's father. And I'll read verses 1 to 4. Now King David was old enough and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for for a beautiful woman throughout all the territory of Israelite, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. 
The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Did you catch that in verse 4? The king knew her not. That's biblical lingo for no hanky-panky going on there, okay? She was just acting as his personal snuggie, you know, the blankets with the arms that you can wear while you're watching TV. That's what her job was. That's what she was to do. She was there to help keep the body heat in for the king. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And now I'm going to read verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now the final warning regarding solo travel revolved around the very likely possibility that one would get robbed on the journey. Notice that Kohelet is saying in verse 12, you might prevail against one who is alone. Two will withstand him, him being the robber. Problem is, if there's more than one robber, you might be hooped. The, the teacher doesn't kind of cover that, right? But what he is saying that if, you're, if you're, there's at least two of you traveling together, you will be able to overcome a single robber. And he wraps up this section with a well-known idiom at the time, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And this, this expression actually goes back to the time of Gilgamesh, but um, this is, again, practical advice and completely true. As, and you know this if you've ever worked with cables or ropes or cords or even some threads. They're stronger when you have three smaller strands woven together instead of a single strand of the same diameter. Now, not exactly ground-shaking biblical advice for modern readers, right? The application for us is the modern-day expression, no man is an island. In other words, God did not create us to be alone. For in the beginning, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, so God made for him a helpmate. It is also true that as Paul teaches, God calls some to a life of singleness in order to concentrate on kingdom work, but they are not to be alone. Even in their singleness, they are still to be in a community of believers, not isolated and alone. These verses in Ecclesiastes are what in, in Hebrew are known as tob sayings, T-O-B. Tob sayings are usually used to contrast two examples. One tob, the other example is what they refer to as a hot, H-O-T-E. Uh, one is good, the other is bad with the Tob saying be the mo being the more positive comparison. Think of Tob sayings as it is better sayings. The first two sections of this chapter 4 concluded with a Tob saying. If you look at chapter 4, verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds of the, that are done under the sun. So that's a Tob saying because of the, the expression better than. The same applies in... Uh, verse 6, that, that's, that's, those two sections end with the Tob settings. And these last two sections that we're looking at each start with a Tob saying, verse 9 and verse 13. Verse 9, two are better than one. And in verse 6, the first, thir sorry, verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Now this whole section of verses 7 to 12 that we just looked at, um, they were also presented as poetry. Unfortunately, the ESV doesn't 
uh, doesn't portray that. Um, other translations, like the NIV, it's very clear these verses are all laid out as in poetry. But here in verses 13 to 16, we're transitioning to a new thought, and even in the NIV, it's presented as a narrative, as a story. So let's read verses 13 to 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. So again, notice in this section starts with the Tob saying, better a poor youth than an old and foolish king. And remember that there's a comparison there in the corresponding Hote statement. The Hote saying often refers to one who was a sinner, an offender, or one who misses the mark. Do you recall when Pastor Chris came from Red Deer and gave us that excellent sermon in April about the sin, and he used that definition, sin is missing the mark? This is, it's the same similar idea here in the Hote expression. So this comparison in this section is between what society would normally consider to be the offender, a poor youth who may have come from prison to the kingship. We would normally consider that person to be the sinner, right? But we need to keep in mind that in those days, the prison in those days was often used to isolate political prisoners, or, as is probably the case here with this young man, Prison was the people that could not repay their debt were placed in prison as a source of cheap labor so they could work off their debt. The contrast is an old king, probably one who had ruled for some time. Society would often look at a stable ruler as the favored party between the two. Look at how the world adores Queen Elizabeth right now because we've all been celebrating her platinum jubilee, right? But we need to look closely at the details to pick up on which party is the preferred one here in this passage and which one is actually missing the mark. It is true that the youth is poor and may have come from prison, but verse 13 points out the preferred attribute between the two when it says, better or poor but wise youth. Wisdom is the preferred attribute here in this section. The king is the subject of the Hote comparison with the wording foolish who no longer knows how to heed a warning. Now the warning may have come from his advisors or it may have come directly from God. We don't have time to turn to these passages uh, and read them this morning, but please make, make note of them. Uh, I encourage you to read them to dig a little deeper into the background. What I'm talking about here is the passages in 1 Kings. Uh, I also mentioned them in the last sermon that I taught in Ecclesiastes. If Solomon is being autobiographical here, remember how 1 Kings records that Solomon received two personal visits from Yahweh, and each visit was also accompanied with a warning? The first time that the Lord appeared to Solomon was in 1 Kings 3, verses 5 to 14. The second time that the Lord appeared to Solomon was in 1 Kings 9, 1 to 9, Again, a vision from Yahweh, and again, it was accompanied by a warning. Two warnings that Solomon managed to ignore, and we see that Yahweh stripped Solomon's line of the United King, Kingdom of Israel. 
This raising of enemies by Yahweh to bring down Solomon's line is recounted in 1 Kings 11, verses 4 to 40. Again, we don't have time to read the passage, but God's hand is clearly evident when God first uses a prophet to go and tell Jeroboam that he would be given the remnant of Solomon's kingdom. And this should be a warning to our leaders of today. Daniel chapter 2, verses 21 to 22 says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The application here is that our leaders and those who wish to become our leaders, people from Klaus Schwab to the prime minister to the premier to the mayor of Olds to the County Reeves, to the elders of our church, as well as the pastor and other ministry leaders, we all need to keep that warning from Daniel 2 in mind. The Lord placed all of these people in these positions. He has the ability to remove them at His will, and they are accountable to God for how they carry out their duties. It is tempting here in this passage to try and assign specific people to these references of the poor man and the king. Possibly it's referring to Joseph and Pharaoh from Genesis. That comes to mind. There are even contemporary examples from Solomon's time that would work, like David and Saul, or perhaps Solomon and Rehoboam. But since there are multiple possible examples, we are best served by simply looking at and absorbing the principles of the passage. The principle is that God instills rulers and God removes rulers as and when he desires. This passage also highlights the final fallacy that I'll mention this morning, and that is the appeal to authority fallacy. This fallacy illustrates the false ideology that just because someone from a position of authority claims something, it must be true. Experts and people in authority are fallen human creatures like you and I, and as such, We cannot fall into the trap that just because someone is in a respected position of leadership, everything out of their mouths is subject to our blind obedience. This fallacy has become so strong in our culture today that a popular debating technique being used to shut down discussions, that's when the argument is not going their way, the losing party will often say, are you a scientist or are you a biologist? When even though all that's needed to carry on the conversation is just common sense. This is particularly popular when having discussions around gender nowadays. So Vladimir Lenin was in a position of authority when he led Russia into full-blown communism. Joseph Stalin led Russia, which became the Soviet Union during and after World War II. He was in a position of authority. Both these men murdered thousands of Christians because they saw Christianity as a threat to their power. History is full of other examples of terrible leaders, Mao Zedong, Fidel Castro, Pol Pot. As Christians, we must not fall victim to the appeal to authority fallacy. We are to use our discernment and our scriptures to guide us, all the while depending on the leading of God the Father, listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, all in complete obedience to bring glory to our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. This even applies to men who stand in this pulpit and preach. 
that may be even more critical for us to use as believers. Now, let's step back a minute and take a bit of an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes so far. Have you noticed in these first four chapters that much of Kohelet, the teacher's been sharing with us, has been very me-centered? It's been very man-centered? Kohelet's shown very little regard for what Yahweh is concerned with or what Yahweh is asking of man. These questions do help to illustrate what a life under the sun looks like, S-U-N. And the definition, remember the definition of a life lived under the sun. It means it was a Hebrew idiom or a Hebrew expression that meant a life lived apart from God. Let's explore that a little further. What does a life lived apart from God look like for most people today? With a show of hands, how many have been a dedicated Christ follower for less than five years. Oh, wow. Oh, well, there's one in the back. Thank you. Uh, how many for less than a year? Anybody for less than a year? No? Okay. Because I was going to say, what I'm about to teach probably doesn't apply to you. Uh, but for you long-term Christians, for us veterans in the faith, and uh, can you remember a time of what your life looked like without Christ? Some of you who were born into Christian homes may not even be able to remember a time when you didn't know about Jesus. I know it's true that you had to make that personal decision and begin a personal relationship with Christ. No one gains entrance based on their parents' faith. You have to own it yourself. But can you ever remember a time when Jesus wasn't a part of your life? Let's all turn to Galatians chapter 5. And I have to tell you, uh, this is completely off script, but before the service, a group of us that are serving, we gathered together in the basement for a time of prayer. And one of the brothers that was there in prayer time was read this passage out, and I just got tingles because it sort of told me, okay, Paul, you're on the right path. This is what we want to talk about today. Okay, so... Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It's a small Galatians, small book in the back of your Bible. Is everybody there? It's a passage that most, most veteran Christians are familiar with, the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to read it. We're going to start at verse 22. But the, fruit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Just stay here in this passage for a bit, but this passage is very comforting to us as Christians, right? These are the rewards that we can expect to see in our lives if we are fully trusting in Jesus. If we are faithfully and honestly following his teachings, putting our faith in his completed work on the cross, we should be able to see these things as evidence in our lives. They should be so evident that others should see them as well. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. This passage is a bit of a reality check for us Christians, right? Are we going to have all of those things in our lives in perfect measure always? No, of course not. We are fallen creatures living in a fallen world, but as we face the challenges of life, even through the most testing of trials, we should still see evidence of these things in our life if we are following Jesus, if we have placed our faith in his completed work, if we have truly accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, and if we are spending time growing in our faith by spending time with God in prayer, in worship, and in his word, and in fellowship with other believers. God's word tells us that this is available to us no matter what our circumstances actually are. Now, another reality check. We just, look what, we just looked at what the fruit is for believers. Let's back up a few verses and let's see what the non-believers face. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not only a warning to believers, but this is also an examination of those that are without Christ. This is the fruit in their lives. This is what life under the S-U-N looks like. This is what it looks like if you travel alone without Jesus. Sexual immorality and a strong desire to pull others into that pit of impurity and sensuality with you. Things like free love, open marriages, gay, lesbian, bi, anything goes as long as it makes you feel better. Idolatry. Worshipping the creation rather than the creator. Climate change, anybody? Sorcery. Following false religions like Wicca. Enmity, strife, jealousy, which comes from insecurity. Fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. These are the fruit of those living apart from God. These are where the lost try to find their happiness this is where they put their faith. I tell you this not to pass judgment on them. And if you were, check your righteousness, friends. I was there in that pit with them not so long ago that I can't remember what that life is like. I'm telling you, th you these things not just to contrast how blessed we are or should be, but also to illustrate how lost they are. We've been tossing around that statement throughout this whole series on Ecclesiastes, a life lived apart from God, while we've been preaching without really taking the time to study and understand what that actually looks like for the lost. I know that we all have friends and coworkers, and we all probably have family members who are showing these fruit in their lives and not the fruit of the Spirit. Do you see the unspoken and repressed miserable life these people are actually living? Sure, on the surface, they may look like they have it all together. They may have money, travel, nice things, 
But Ecclesiastes 2, 22 to 23 says, what a man has from all the toil and striving a heart with, with which he toils beneath the sun, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is, relax, is vexation. This is what our lost loved ones are experiencing behind closed doors. This is why we must share the gospel with them so that they can experience the love and security that can be found in a relationship with Jesus. This is a command from our king. This is the commission we are all called to carry out. Now, we're going to transition into another commitment that we as a body of believers carry out here on earth. And that is the faithful and proper administration of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. When we gather together like this and observe the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit shows up and administers what is known as an ordinary means of grace. What is that? These are ordinary things that we do that the Holy Spirit of God uses to accomplish extraordinary things, like the imparting of faith and the sustaining, strengthening, and the confirmation of our faith. As such, participation in the Lord's Supper is reserved for believers only. If you have not yet accepted Jesus as Savior, we ask that you simply allow the elements to pass by you. I'll ask the worship team now to come and join me, and the ushers, please come forward and pass out the elements. We're just going to ask you to, to remain seated this morning. We're going to do things a little bit different than we usually do. While the trays are being passed around, um, I would ask that you take the cups and wait, and we'll all partake together. Once everyone has the elements, I'll pray and read some scripture and lead us in the taking of the elements. While we are waiting, let's take a few moments of quiet reflection to remember exactly who Jesus is and the completed work that he accomplished for us. Now, According to both the 1646 Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, the self-examination that we are to do before the partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are to ask ourselves if we fully trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is not a me moment. This is not a me moment of reflection but rather it is a Christ-centered moment of reflection and what he has done. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we humbly come before you today to participate in one of the two ordinances that your son established for us during his earthly ministry. 
We take this bread as symbols of his broken body that was broken for our transgressions. We drink this juice as a remembrance of his spilt blood, the blood of the perfect and spotless lamb that was sacrificed for us to atone for our sins. Father, we have not done anything to deserve this gift. We cannot do anything to earn this. We recognize that this was all part of your perfect plan of redemption that was made between the members of the Godhead before the beginning of creation and the beginning of time. We thank you for the completed work that your son accomplished on the cross for our benefit. We thank you for the perfect plan of redemption that we get to enter into simply by accepting and placing our faith in Jesus and his completed work. We thank you for the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But above all these things, we thank you for your grace and for your love. And we pray these things with full confidence in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Gospel of Luke records the Last Supper with these words. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is not his actual body as some teach, but a symbol of his broken body. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Luke continues, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among you among yourselves for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes again this is not his actual blood but merely a symbol of his spilt blood that was shed for us let's do this in remembrance of him let's pray Father, I again thank you for this day and for all that your Son has done for us. For those who chose to believe, we thank you in your precious Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.